Pray with me. We're going to open our Bibles. Father in heaven, the gift of laughter really is great. Thank you for that. It can change our countenance at times, and it certainly reminds us of all of your goodness. So we do appreciate it. Lord, this morning as we get into our Bibles, we're going to deal with an issue that, well, it's a stumbling block for a lot of people, too many people. It's mired in doubts. It's mired in questions. It's just difficult for many to overcome. I pray that through the truth of your word and the power of your spirit, we will overcome it this morning. I'm asking that you'll make me a communicator and then get me out of the way so that we can just hear your truth. That's my prayer in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. I shared parts of this story the other day at a memorial service I was doing on Friday afternoon, and it it seemed fitting for this message as well. So I want to share portions of it with you today also. It comes from a lady named Angie Smith. It's her story. I don't want to change many of the details. She can tell it however she would like. She wrote it in a book titled Mended. In that book, she talks about a lot of the difficulties that she has had to overcome. She would say that there were many days in her life that were not good. But on this particular day, things had gone well. She was leaving work and had a big smile on her face and in her heart when she got into her car. She called her best friend from the car to tell her about the good day she was having. Now, you might be able to argue that that was not the wisest thing to do, particularly given the the next few details of the story. While she was driving home, talking on the phone, a car pulled out in front of her. She said that the driver was not paying attention. Now, there's your arguing point. She was on the phone. It could be well argued that she was not paying attention. She hit her brakes, slammed them on. She hit two other cars, but she avoided the car in front of her. However, that caused her vehicle to go into a roll. It went all the way over. As it was rolling, Angie would say that she heard two things. She heard the sound of a scream. Later, she realized it was her own voice. And she heard the sound of breaking glass. She would experience that broken glass in just a few moments. After the car came to rest on its wheels, she climbed through one of the broken windows. Remember the sound of the breaking glass? On her way out, the glass that remained in the window cut her shoulder. Those cuts joined a few other abrasions and minor scrapes that she had received in the accident. That's all she was injured, just a few scrapes and abrasions and these cuts on her shoulders. Now, because of the blood from the glass, it looked like she was hurt a lot worse than she was. When the ambulance attendants got there, they took her over to the ambulance, they set her down, checked her out, and cleaned her up a little bit. While she was sitting at the ambulance, she was watching a bunch of the other rescue workers do their job. She was particularly enthralled with the police officers. They were over by the car taking pictures. Now, you know that they have to do that for very specific reasons. They take pictures for their insurance companies. They take pictures to assess what happened. They take pictures even to assign blame. So they were taking a bunch of those very photos. She walked over to them, not understanding what they were doing, and all of the police officers explained to her why they had to do that. Then she went back and sat down and continued to watch them. They were focusing on one particular area of the car, and that didn't make any sense to her. So she went back to ask him what was going on. They were standing up at the front corner shooting pictures of the driver's side front tire. A lot of pictures. She said, why are you guys so focused on this area? And they said to her, given the angle of the roll and the speed in which you were going, everything else that came into play, you not wearing your seatbelt, you should actually be wedged under this tire. 
We can't figure out how you're not. So they're shooting pictures of it. They're telling her this story, and she's thinking, how do you know that? Then it made sense to her. She looked at the tire, studied it really closely, and she saw the only item that was pitched out of the car in the roll. It was a rosary that she had received from the Catholic Church. Now, she had spent a long time away from God. She'd made a vow to the Lord, said that she was going to get close to Him again, given some of the difficulties that she had faced in life. When she made that decision, she went back to the Catholic Church. It was the only church that she knew. She went through some classes. At the end of the classes, they gave her this rosary. She kept it in her car. It was thrown out of the car in the wreck. The really amazing thing was this. It was covered with her blood. So they're taking pictures of it. She's looking at it. And instantly, she began to make sense of some passages of Scripture that had been formally a mystery to her. Things began to click as she stood there staring at this rosary covered in her blood, thinking of all the ways that God had protected her. There was one particular passage that she'd been wrestling with for a while. It's found in the Old Testament. Why don't you turn there with me? Book of Jeremiah. She would tell you, Angie would, that it made sense to her as she stood on the side of the road. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, skipping down just a line or two. We read, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, declares the Lord. As she stood on the side of the road, Angie says that really began to make sense to her. She was a new pot. The former pot was marred. God destroyed it, and then he made a new pot. She was new in Christ. She had been protected by God. Her blood had been covered by his blood. It all made sense to her. It was all clicking. Everything was coming together. And then Angie says that as clear as day, she heard the voice of the Lord tell her that she was to go home, find a pot, take it into the backyard, and smash it. She had never experienced that before. She had no idea what it was about, but she knew the message was from God. So she went home, dug around in her basement, found a pot, went outside into the backyard onto her patio, lifted the pot up above her head, threw it down onto the ground, and smashed the pot into multiple pieces. Later on, she would say she should have put it in a plastic bag first. God didn't give her that detail. So she smashed it on the patio. Her husband thought she was crazy. He said, what are you doing? She said, God told me to do it. And then God told her right after that, pick up all the pieces, take them inside, and reassemble them. She did. Picked up every one of those pieces, went into the kitchen table, got some glue, and she started putting it all back together. If her husband thought she was crazy when she broke it, he really thought she was off the rails now. She's putting the thing back together. When she was finished, she was holding this cracked pot that would never hold any form of liquid now. It would leak something fierce. And she said in that moment, she began to understand another passage of Scripture. It's found in the New Testament, book of 1 Corinthians, actually 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul writes these words. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. 
perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Now, this is what Angie Smith would tell you. She began to understand holding this cracked pot, that it was the new pot of her life. She was a new vessel in Christ, but she was cracked because of life. She'd been hard-pressed from every side, but she was not crushed. She was perplexed, but not abandoned. All the things that Paul would lay out, she had experienced all those things. And Angie would say, it put cracks in her pot, but the pot was still together. And then she understood what Paul was saying. Those cracks exist so that the love of Jesus can flow out of us, so that they're not just contained, sealed up inside the pot. The cracks exist so that Christ can come out. The cracks exist so that the love that we have experienced can be demonstrated to other people. There's a purpose in the cracks. It all made sense to her. Once she realized that she was a new pot, yet cracked, and God had a purpose for every one of them, she could begin to accept things about him that she had never accepted before. And this spiritual awakening happened in her life. There was a purpose for the cracks. Now, here's the interesting news of that, or the interesting application of it. You are a cracked pot. Now, somebody may have told you that before. I mean it in the spiritual sense. You are a cracked pot. I am a cracked pot. Maybe nobody's ever told you that, and I get the privilege of being the first one. What a thrilling thing. You are a cracked pot for a purpose that the love of Christ might flow out of you. That's what they are there for. The psalmist would actually sum it up this way. Go back to the Old Testament with me, the book of Psalms. 116th Psalm. You can hear the cracks as you read this. Verse 1. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. There's some cracks. The anguish of the grave came upon me. More cracks. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. A lot of cracks. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. I love verse 7. The psalmist is able to say, be at rest, O my soul. All these questions that I've had, all these things that have bothered me, all these things that I have not understood, now i got a hold of. Angie Smith would have said the same thing. Now I have a hold of it. I am a new person in Christ. I am a new vessel. I am a new pot. But I am cracked because life has cracked me for one simple person, purpose, that the love of God might flow out of me. Listen to three of the things that the psalmist would say God has done for him. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death. God has saved him. Number two, my eyes from tears. He has delivered my eyes from tears. You have met me in the midst of my trouble, and you have dried my eyes. You have delivered my feet from stumbling. The things that pull me down, you've helped me overcome. That's what the psalmist is saying. You have saved me. You have dried my tears. And you have helped me overcome the biggest struggles of my life. The psalmist is bringing it all together. 
I'm a new pot in Christ, albeit a cracked one. This is what God has done for me. Now listen, verse 8, or verse 9. You've done all of this that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 10. I believed, therefore I said. Now there are some translations of the Bible that take that last line and translate it this way. I believed, therefore I spoke. That's what Paul was saying back in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to tell people what God has done for me. I will speak through the cracks. God has met me where I am at. He has done all of this for me. I will speak through the cracks. Verse 12, he goes on, the psalmist does, to say, how can I repay the Lord for all of his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So the Apostle Paul, the psalmist, they would both come together to make this statement. Not only will I speak of God's love through the cracks that exist in my life, I will do it all the days of my life. All the way to the end, I will speak of what God has done for me. Now there's a lot of Christians that would say that they will do the exact same thing. But folks, this is the sad thing. There are a lot of Christians, a lot of people in the church today that would say there's nothing to speak of. God may have saved me, but that's as far as it's ever gone. He's not involved in my life. He has not met me in my tears. He has not met me in the things that caused me to stumble. He's not even remotely responsible for the cracks that exist in my pot. He's nowhere to be seen. They believe that God created the heavens and the earth. They believe that God saved us. And then they believe that nature dictates everything else. They fit in a category called deism into a belief system called deism. Deists believe that very thing, that God created the heavens and the earth and then he went on vacation and he left the laws of nature to take care of everything else, to govern everything that happens around us. Luck and chance are more of a driving force than the love of God and the Holy Spirit. That could not be further from the truth. But the church is full of a number of deists. This morning, I want to show you the truth that God meets us where we're at, that he is involved in our lives on a day-to-day basis. And I'm hoping to illustrate it for you in such a way that you can take it home as gospel and you can share it with other people. Let's start with this idea. The Lord will seek you out no matter where you're at. He will come and find you no matter where you're at, even if you're up in a tree. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go back to the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Great story. We meet a a really interesting character here in Luke chapter 19. Some of you have met him before. Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. 
Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now let's get into this story, but let's do it in kind of a different way. I want to pop the hood on it and really look below the surface. Because if all you ever do is see the surface of the story, you'll miss the point of of what's here. We're going to start with Zacchaeus' name. His name means the righteous one. When he was born, his parents looked at him. Names had great meaning in those days. His parents looked at him and said, He is going to walk with God all the days of his life. Let's name him accordingly. So they named him Zacchaeus, the righteous one. All you have to do is see the surface of the story to know that Zacchaeus did not live up to it. He was known by everyone around him, particularly the Pharisees, as nothing more than a sinner. When Jesus went to his house, they said, Oh my, look at this, Jesus has gone to the house of a sinner. The simple fact of the matter in Zacchaeus' life is that he failed to live up to the expectations his parents had for him. He failed to live up to his name. You can imagine the guilt that was attached to that. Every day when he got out of bed and thought to himself, today I am going to be the righteous one. Today I'm going to live close to God. And every night when he went to bed thinking to himself, or to himself, I missed the mark. I didn't pull it off. You ever felt like, I'm just curious, that you didn't live up to somebody else's expectations? Anybody ever feel like you didn't live up to your own expectations? Anybody ever feel like you let God down? That was Zacchaeus. Now in Zacchaeus' world, he was a very prominent man in society. He was a tax collector. Now, along with many people in those days, we might think what makes him prominent in that position. The prominence came because of the authority that he had. Tax collectors in the New Testament were out assessing taxes to people and collecting as much as they possibly could. The government was going to take their part of it, but the tax collectors had the authority to assess people with other taxes and keep all that money for themselves. They were thieves. That's it. They were just thieves. Now, we could easily try to jump into our world today and and it would be wrong. Well, let's just do it. Have you ever thought of the IRS? They have a title, the IRS. It looks just like this, the IRS. We know who they are, Internal Revenue Service. But have you ever put those two words together? It's theirs. Those were tax collectors. Same thing. They were out gaining taxes or gaining wealth through taxes and keeping it all for themselves. Nobody liked them, yet they still had these positions of authority. Zacchaeus, in a position of authority, would have had certain social standards that he had to live up to. One of them was this. In the New Testament, no man in a position of authority would have ever run. That was something that children did. But he'd heard about Jesus, and the Bible says he ran ahead of the crowds. And then he he took it up a whole nother notch. Because he was vertically challenged, Zacchaeus knew that he was never going to see over the crowds. So he did something else that no person in a position of authority would have done in those days. He climbed a tree so that he could see Jesus. Nobody would have ever thought of a tax collector, a publican, doing such a thing. Yet really what he was doing was living out a passage that Jesus would have shared with anybody that would listen from Luke chapter 18. Turn back just one chapter and listen to this. Luke chapter 18, verse 17. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Zacchaeus knew something. He ran to meet Jesus the way a child would have met Jesus. 
I'll run as fast as I can. I'll climb the tree. I want to see if the stories are true. I want to hear what he has to say as he teaches the multitudes. I have to get there first. Just like a little kid. Jesus would have honored it. Now here's where we've got to pop the hood and get underneath the surface. Ostensibly, you would read this passage and believe that Zacchaeus went to meet Jesus. It appears that way. But did you see what happened? When Jesus walked with the crowds following him, he walked up to Zacchaeus. He went to where Zacchaeus was at, and he talked to him up in the tree. And he says the most interesting thing to him. Zacchaeus, you come down. I must stay at your house tonight. That is the only place in the New Testament that you will find any record of Jesus inviting himself to go stay with somebody, to go to their house. Now, there are other places in the New Testament where we find Jesus at people's homes, but it was at their invitation. This is the only place where he said, I'm going to come stay at your house. The only place in all of the Bible. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus' words. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's the invitation of Jesus. I'll come to your house. That's exactly what he did with Zacchaeus. He came to his house, but he found him first in the tree. He said, you come down from there, Zacchaeus. We got to go home. I need to go to your house. I need to stay with you. If we could begin to understand that the Lord does the same thing with us, we can make application of this passage. Here's how. Jesus says at the end of it that he came to seek and to save the lost. That's me, that's you, that's every person. Jesus seeks us out. He comes to find us. And then he invites himself to our house. What we do from that point is up to us. Now, you may very well walk him back to your home and then say goodbye in the driveway. You may let him up on the front porch and then you go inside and you turn him away. You may let him into the dining room but that's as far as you ever take him. The natural question that you have to ask yourself out of this passage is what have you done with Jesus in your house? He came to look for you. He came to seek you. He came to save you. He is so interested in your life that he will seek you out wherever you're at. Even if you're in a tree, he will find you. And then he will come to your house. He'll live there. He'll eat with you. He'll become a part of your family. He'll change everything inside there. What do you do with him? Is he in the dining room or have you taken him to the living room and said, sit down, make yourself at home? Have you shown him to a bedroom? Have you given him access to your bedroom? Have you taken him down into the basement? Have you shown him the attic? Or do you keep him out in the garage? What do you do with Jesus? He's come to find you. What do you do with him? There are a lot of people that would say, Jesus is not involved in my life and he doesn't care about me personally because they've never responded to his invitation. They've never taken him home. They stayed in the tree. They stayed on the road. They stayed in the street. They never took him home. What have you done with Jesus? Where does he live in your house? Where does he live in your home, your heart? Well, if we can understand this basic teaching that Jesus cares enough about us, God cares enough about us to seek us out no matter where we're at, it will allow us to understand this next teaching, which is a little more difficult. God puts boundaries around our life. He loves us so much that he puts boundaries around our lives. Go with me to the book of Job again. Old Testament, book of Job, right before the book of Psalms. It's long been held by biblical scholars that Job is the 
oldest book in the Bible. It predates Genesis. Not the events of it, but the writing of it. We don't know exactly who the author was. We don't have all of his history except what is in the book. That's all there is. But arguably, it is the oldest book in the Bible. And as such, it gives us insight into things that no other book does, like this. Job chapter 1, verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Now look at what's happening. Satan has come to present himself before the Lord. You know the whole interchange. And then Satan says, well, of course Job is blessed. Look at the boundaries around his life. You won't let me touch him. You won't let anything else touch him. You're just blessing him within those boundaries. But if you move the boundaries, then we're going to really see what the character of the man is. So God says, so be it. I'll move the boundaries. Now, Job had been living in this tight boundary of God's blessing. Everything was going the way he wanted it to go. Now, all of a sudden, God enlarges the boundary. He says, you can do anything you want to him, but don't you touch him. So Job loses his business, he loses his home, he loses his family, everyone but his wife. They were all killed. The boundary had been enlarged. Yet Job remained faithful. So pick up in chapter 2. Look what happens. Verse 1. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Now here's what God did. We started with a close boundary. And then God said, I'll move the boundary. And now God says, I'll move it again. You can touch his body. And Satan afflicted him with horrible diseases. Some of them brought about boils like you could never imagine. The Bible would teach us that it got so bad that he was sitting on piles of broken pottery, scraping his flesh with the broken pieces of pottery, trying to get some relief from the boils. It was that bad. So much so that His wife, Job's wife, at one point would look at him and say, why are you putting up with this? Just curse God and die. Odds are it wasn't on Valentine's Day. She said, curse God and die. Just put this thing behind you. And Job would not do it. Two times the boundary was enlarged. Three different boundaries that he lived within. God still does the same thing for us. We live in boundaries of protection with God knowing exactly what you are capable of. We live in boundaries of protection where God knows you so well that he is protecting you. If you don't believe me, go to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 13. 
No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. There's the boundary. The boundary of protection is around you, placed there by God. You will never be tempted beyond anything that you can handle. Now, the boundary may get bigger through the years as you grow up in Christ. Early on, the boundary is going to be real close, real tight. As you get a little more experience with the Lord, the boundary may very well get moved, but it's never going to be moved beyond what you are capable of dealing with because God knows you that well. The boundary around my life may be different than the boundary around yours. Mine may be tighter, mine may be bigger, doesn't matter. The boundaries are person-specific. God knows exactly what you are capable of. God knows exactly what you can handle. God knows where the line is that you cannot cross. The boundary is there for your protection. Parents understand that very thing. When your children are very small, the boundaries are very close. As your kids get older, you move the boundaries. As they get bigger, you move the boundaries. As they get more responsible, you move the boundaries. That's the way it works, and it works the same way with God. So much so that sometimes within those boundaries, we find the disciplining hand of God. He disciplines us within the boundaries to keep us away from them because God knows that we need to not get close. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We'll go to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. God disciplines all of us. How many of you have been disciplined by God? How many of you know you've been disciplined by God? How many of you think you've never been disciplined by God? You're wrong. God disciplines us because he loves us. And the reason he disciplines us is that love is so strong that he wants to keep us away from the boundary. So he will discipline us to do that very thing. Now, you might think this is an Old Testament teaching. It's not. It's also found in the book of Hebrews. God disciplines us because he loves us. That's part of the boundary. And he can only discipline those that he knows. He can only discipline you within the boundary because he intimately knows you within the boundary. Now, let me illustrate this for you in kind of a goofy way. If you've worshipped with us very long at all, you know that Tina and I have two black labs that we love. They are a part of our family. I don't mean that they are pets. I mean they're part of our family. I don't mean that they live outside and we go out and feed them a couple times a day and talk to them. No, 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 no. They are a part of our family. They live in our house. One of them sleeps with my daughter. They are a part of our family. Cheyenne's our oldest dog. She'll be 13 in May. She's my dog. She's just my dog. Love Cheyenne. She and I have had all kinds of adventures together. Parker's our young one. She's three. She is ostensibly Tina and Katie's dog. They have loved her. I love her too, and the boys love her. She's just their dog, and they, they have spoiled her beyond all recognition. They really have. The first year of Parker's life, Tina was at home all the time, and so Parker had access to her 24-7, and they formed quite a bond. Then Tina went back to work, and Parker's world got turned upside down. Prior to that, they had the run of the entire house when we were gone, and there was never a problem. Cheyenne and Parker could go any place they wanted. They wanted to go upstairs, lay on the couch, go upstairs, lay on the couch. They wanted to lay on the chairs, go upstairs, lay on the chairs. But things changed one day when we came home and saw this. 
<clears throat> Parker had gone upstairs, and she ate the couch. Now, I tell you that she's a very unique dog. Your dogs may not talk. Our dogs talk. We are pretty positive that when Parker was sitting there like that, what she was saying to us is, I slipped. <laughs> and we're, we're saying to our dog, how did this happen? And all she could say back was, I slipped. Well, we now know what separation anxiety looks like and all those different kinds of things. The only thing that saved her was the fact that we were really tired of this love seat and wanted a new one. And so that's the only thing that kept bloodshed from happening, albeit it would have been very small bloodshed because we love her. And so here's what we've had to do ever since then. There's a gate that sits at the top of our stairs. We don't allow them to go up there anymore when we are gone. They're blocked out of that part of the house because we know that Parker can't be trusted. There's the boundary. If we put her back up there, she might eat the new couch. That could be devastating. So we put a boundary there. That's the boundary. God does the same thing. Now, poor Cheyenne got disciplined in the crossfire. She doesn't understand it. She's had access to the couch for a long time. She hates Parker. She has from the moment we brought her home. So her hatred has just been accelerated. That's all it is. But the boundary is in place for Parker's safety. We had to discipline her to move her back away from the line. Parents, you know how that works. That's what discipline is all about. You discipline your children because they get too close to the boundary. You discipline your children to move them back for their protection, for their safety, If you're disciplining for any other reason, if you're disciplining out of anger and frustration, then you're wrong. If you're disciplining to protect your children, to move them back away from the boundary, then you're expressing your love to them. That's what that's about. And God does the same thing for us. He is so involved in our lives that he knows when we get too close to the boundary and he disciplines us to push us back. That's love. That's involved love. And it all comes from this understanding that he is intimately involved in our lives. He's connected to us on a day-to-day basis. Go with me back to the New Testament. Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 17. A little tiny passage of scripture. There's a lot of teaching in it. John, chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work. To this very day, and I too am working. Now, to the deist, that's not going to make any sense because they believe that God created the heavens and the earth and then he went on vacation. He just went somewhere else. But Jesus turns that whole idea upside down. He says, My father is working all the time. My father is at work, as am I, all the time. The natural question is once creation is done, if everything is all finished, and it was in those seven days, then what is God doing? What is his work? Here's the answer. It's you. It's me. It's all of humanity. It's all of mankind. God is at work in our lives. He's seeking and saving the lost, but he's also doing other things. Go with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified 
that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen that do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. There's God's work. He is sanctifying the believers. Now, that's this big church word, Sunday school type of word, sanctification. And, and we have to boil it down in order to make it make sense. Here's what sanctification means. It means that God has taken all the ugly stuff out of your life and he is making you a reflection of himself. That's sanctification. It's the process of pursuing holiness. And all through the New Testament, we're told to do that very thing, to pursue holiness. But we cannot do it on our own. You will miss the mark every time, just like Zacchaeus. You may have this idea of being the righteous one, but without the power of God, you're not going to pull it off. You have to have God to do it. And God gives us this wonderful gift called the Holy Spirit to help in the process, to sanctify us, to convict us of sin, to help us see the ugliness and what to replace it with. That's sanctification. That's the work of God today. And there's no way that he could do it if he wasn't intimately aware of who you are. If he wasn't meeting you right where you're at inside those boundaries that he's placed around you. Sanctification allows God to look at our struggles, to look at the things that pull us backwards and help us move past them. That's sanctification and that is the work of God. And he's involved in it every day. Connected to you every day day connected to every believer to help in that process because let me say it again without him you will not achieve it you will not be able to even make a step into sanctification but with him you can go a long ways without him nowhere with him long ways and you can stay faithful all the way to the end so that when you stand before him he'll be able to look at you and say well done my good and faithful servant Now, I am fully aware of the fact that in this discussion, there is a giant pink elephant in the room that has to be addressed. And I want to make sure that I do that. So none of you head off to lunch with other people and say, gosh, Phil's just a big chicken. He wouldn't address it. I don't want you to be able to say that, so I'm going to address it. Here's the big pink elephant that we have to call out. People will say, if God is really involved, if God really cares, why do Bad things happen all the time. If God is really involved in our lives, if he is really around us, why are we seeing innocent people having to suffer so much? Why are there natural disasters all around us? Why are these wars happening? Why is all of that taking place? Because God could stop it. Yes, he could, but he told us he wouldn't. So here's the answer to the question. Go with me to Matthew chapter 24. I'm not going to answer it. I'm just going to let God answer it. He does a better job than I do anyway. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Give you just a minute to get there. I want everybody to see this. So if you put your Bible away, pull it back out. Matthew chapter 24. 
Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So when you hear about the wars that are happening all around the world, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 116 wars being fought right now all around the globe. You hear about those wars and you hear about new ones that are going to start and here's this skirmish that's getting kicked up over here and here's the dust flying over here. Well, the Bible says all that's going to happen. Everybody that's going to take place. And some of the false teachers, some of the deceptiveness of this are people that would stand up and say, if there really was a God, he would put a stop to this. He would put an end to it. But did you hear what Jesus just said? It has to happen. It is a part of the prophecy and the revelation that he's going to return. We're seeing it happen all around us. And it goes to a whole nother level. Listen to the next verse. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Now you might think, okay, I can handle the wars and the rumors of wars because that's mankind getting involved. But what about these natural disasters? What about the earthquakes? What about the hurricanes? What about the tsunamis? What about the tornadoes? What about the volcanoes that are killing so many people? How can God stand by and watch that happen? God said it has to happen. It's a sign of the coming of the end. It is a sign of his return. And that is an evangelistic sign that people would repent and turn to God. You might think, well, that just isn't fair because so many people lose their lives. Hurricane hits this place and and people die. Earthquakes hit places like Haiti and hundreds of thousands of people die. And it isn't fair. Well, folks, read the book of Revelation. There's one point in the place where things are revealed where a quarter of the population will die. In one fell swoop, a quarter of the population will die. And God's not doing it without purpose. His purpose is that people will repent, that they will come back to Him, that they will acknowledge who He is. That's why God does it. It isn't just some willy-nilly act. They will increase the closer we get to the return of Jesus. That's biblical prophecy, and it's being fulfilled around us all the time. Now, I'll show you something that's just real pointed in the world that we live in today. Very next verse, verse 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Do you follow what Jesus was saying? The closer we get to the end, the closer we get to the return of Christ, the more people are going to hate Christians. I'm just curious. How many of you have picked up a newspaper here lately and you have read about people's hatred towards Christians? How how, how many of you? And how many of you think, gosh, it's increasing? 
All you have to do is look at northern Iraq and Syria and what's going on with ISIS. All you have to do, right there, just pay attention to what's going on with ISIS. They are summarily targeting Christians. So here's the prophecy being fulfilled right before our eyes. And Jesus says, this is what will happen. People are going to hear about that, and their love for him is going to grow cold. But those who remain to the very end, those who remain faithful to the very end, will be saved. That's why he's doing it. This isn't some unjust act that causes people to say there is no God. This is God saying, pay attention. He's out there. Pay attention and remain faithful all the way to the end that you might be saved. This morning with the guys I pray with, we prayed that very prayer for those that are under persecution right now. We prayed that they would remain faithful to the very end. Even as others are deserting, we said, Lord, you you strengthen them. And that's the right prayer. And it's even the right prayer for us. Lord, make us remain faithful all the way to the end. We run long. We need to stop. I have a couple other places in Scripture I wanted to go, but we need to stop. Let me just take you back to this question. When Jesus found you and he asked if he could come to your house, what did you do? Did you take him home with you? Did you just talk to him on the street? Did you take him home and, and give him a place there to live? Or did you turn him away at the driveway or the front porch? What did you do with him? For people that wrestle with this deist thought that God doesn't care about us, more often than not, it's because they didn't invite him home. They didn't follow through on his request and his invitation. You take him home. That's how he changes lives. That's how he changes homes. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father, we've covered a lot of ground, maybe too much. I pray that the words did not get in the way, my words didn't get in the way, so that your word could shine. And I pray that truth was preached, hard truth at times, still your truth. Lord, make us receptive to it. I want to pray specifically for those that are wrestling with the idea of a relationship with you, wrestling with the thought that you actually care about them personally. Father, show them in unbelievable ways. Show them so that they can remain faithful to the end. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.